0: My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Motivation Made Easy, and this one I am so excited about. I got to sit down and have a conversation with Dr. Alexis Connison. She is a psychologist who has somewhat of a similar background in research as I did, sort of in the weight normative field or the obesity research field, and has moved away from that Over really the past, it sounds like nine-ish years for her since starting private practice and kind of gradually being exposed to a new paradigm shift. And it was just a really enjoyable conversation. I really appreciate her perspective. And so I'm super excited to dive in. I kind of feel like I got to meet like a health at every size movement celebrity. So it was uh, very fun for me. Uh, Dr. Connison is a clinical psychologist and eating disorder specialist in private practice in New York City. She's the founder of the Anti-Diet Plan, a weight-inclusive online mindful eating program. She was previously a research associate at the New York Nutrition Obesity Research Center in affiliation with Columbia University. And her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals. She's a frequent speaker at conferences and has been widely featured as an expert on the topics of mindful eating, body image, and diet culture in the media. You can find her on social media, on Instagram, at at the anti-diet plan she is a lifelong new yorker she lives in manhattan with her husband and two daughters and she loves all things related to food including cooking food shopping watching food shows on tv and of course eating but most rewarding is helping her clients transform their relationship with food and experience the joys of eating she's a fierce advocate for helping people recognize and question the societal norms that encourage their feeling not good enough about themselves so they can stop stop, fixate on shrinking their bodies and reclaim the space they deserve in this world." So nicely put. So we're going to link all of the resources that she talks about in this interview in the show notes, but what to expect in this interview, I think it's a really good one. Um, We talk a little bit about Dr. Connison's personal history with the ineffective diet cycle. Uh, We focus uh, on her professional transition from obesity research to health at every size and mindful eating work. And we talk about why she chose to focus so much on mindfulness and mindful eating versus intuitive eating per se. And we talk a little bit about um, just her approach and, and sort of the research in that area. We also talk about her thoughts about how weight inclusive work can possibly merge or not merge with the weight loss surgery world. So we have Um, a conversation in that area that I really appreciated. And then we'll talk a little bit about the field and where she'd like to see things improve. And then I think the biggest takeaway from this conversation, hopefully for you, will be ways to incorporate mindfulness that is simple and not overwhelming. I know for me, I've shared a little bit on this podcast that I know the research on mindfulness, I know it's really helpful, but I get very overwhelmed with this idea of I need to do it for even 20 minutes feels like too much and you know we really break it down in this episode about you don't need to do that much and um, there's immense benefits to doing even very small bouts and we talk a little bit about why but hopefully you leave here with that takeaway. And finally, I actually wanted to say Happy New Year because this episode is going to come out on January 3rd, 2022. And I'm recording this um, December 2nd, 2021, because I record things ahead of time. And it's actually kind of bizarre to think about Recording ahead, but I think this this actually was randomly fell onto that date. It wasn't planned at first, but then I felt really good about sharing this episode with you, um, sharing this resource, sharing this focus on mindfulness because I truly believe that you know, committing to yourself to do things differently is going to be a great um, New Year's resolution, if you will. Some people say, I don't set New Year's resolutions and that is valid. That is fine. But if you want to set a resolution or a goal or an intention for this year, I do believe that removing yourself from the ineffective diet cycle and focusing on something effective such as mindfulness or such as getting more in touch with your hunger and fullness and, and getting more in touch with your body and what's going on is a very, very useful place to to focus. So I hope that you will take the challenge, if you will, listen to this conversation and take action at the end. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote unquote, be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought, they will notice I've gained weight or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you. I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide which is quite beautifully designed, if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone, is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So, it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's d-r-h-o-n-d-o-r-p dot forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. All right, so I am really excited about today's conversation with Dr. Alexis Connison. We're going to dive right in, if that's okay with you, Dr. Connison. I'd love to just first hear, I'm really curious about kind of your your personal journey as much or as little as you want to share, and then we're going to dive into a lot of really cool topics today.
1: So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, so I mean, my personal journey with this is... um, I mean, going back from almost as long as I can remember, I grew up in a home with a lot of chronic dieting, and um, you know, food was just always so much more than just food um, in my in my house. And um, growing up with that mentality, I kind of you know um, entered burgeoning adulthood <laughs> with a lot of issues around food, and really like a yearning to try to resolve some of that for myself and. Um, because I had been raised in very much kind of the mainstream diet culture, again, like most of us have been, I definitely um, thought that the answer to my problems was in losing weight and trying to find a way to stay to my diet, um, stay on my diet and have more willpower and just find kind of the right thing that was going to like fix everything. So that's that. That's kind of how I entered the field. Um, I in my quest to try to understand this more for myself, um, became really interested in psychology, uh, that amongst other reasons. And, um, you know, went to college, went to graduate school to study psychology, really with the intention of, um, having a career focused around, uh, weight loss and helping people lose weight and, and keep it off. And, That's what I thought I would be doing with my days. Um, Thankfully, it wasn't long after I graduated and opened my private practice that Um, I started learning more about health at every size and mindful eating while also recognizing that so much of what I had been taught, you know, in terms of it's just about calories in and calories out and motivation and, you know, that didn't work. So I was kind of seeing that didn't work with myself, that didn't work with my clients and um, thankfully was exposed to like an alternative way of doing things that really resonated for me personally, resonated for my clients and, uh,
0: the rest is history as they say. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Was it, was there something
0: specific that brought like health at every size or intuitive eating into your awareness Were you
1: hesitant at first? What was that like exposure like for you? Yeah. So, um, it was, I would say within like the first year of opening my private practice, I attended a mindful eating retreat and it was a pretty weight focused mindful eating training that I was attending. Um, they like gave out little calorie books to everyone midway through and taught us about how to encourage people to cut calories while in the midst of also trying to listen to their body. Um But thankfully, while I was at the retreat, there was a group of people who were involved in the health at every size movement, and they kind of, um, you know, pushed back on this training. And it was all just completely new to me, like I had never heard about health at every size, I had never even heard the idea that diet, that dieting wasn't the path to, you know, thinness and health that, that I, I believed it was. And I was working at the time very much again, in kind of this mainstream weight normative model. I was, I had my private practice, but I was also working in quote unquote obesity research. Um, I had just finished my uh, fellowship training in a bariatric surgery clinic. So I was very much immersed in that, in that model, but also having had the lived experience that like it wasn't so easy for me that I had been kind of like on the wagon, off the wagon for most of my life. And it was the same pattern I was seeing with my clients. You know, of course, I kind of internalized the idea that like, well, it's not working for me because I'm not doing it right. Or there's something wrong with me. But um, while I was at this retreat, I I can remember this very specific moment. Well, we were having our kind of mindful lunch and I was eating and sitting with one of the people who uh, was involved in health at every size. Um, I believe uh, she was a dietitian, and we were talking about dieting and diet culture. And, you know, she said to me like, but you know, that doesn't work. And I was like, what, like, what are you talking about? It was just like the most radical idea but it had never crossed my mind like it had never occurred to me that like the paradigm of dieting didn't work. Um and it got my wheels turning because you know the more that I thought about it initially I was like well of course it works. This is everything I've been taught has been about you know that this is the treatment or the model that works. But when I started thinking about it I was like but it hasn't worked for me and it hasn't worked for my clients and there's so many people who are struggling. maybe there's something to that and have, you know, because I was working in research at the time, I started looking more closely at the research studies and what is the data showing? And I was attending um, often these quote unquote obesity conferences um, where Mm -hmm. they would present the data. And like, it was not showing success. It was showing that most people were not keeping weight off long-term, that dieting was not this panacea of like health and happiness that we had been told. Um, And that's where I started seeing really a disconnect between what the science was saying around um, health and weight and dieting and what the kind of like mainstream beliefs were.
0: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that, and I certainly can relate to this, but you're, we're in these you know, research labs are actively involved in in this work, and and it's not like you hadn't probably seen that data before, but then you have this, like, statement or this new reflection, and then you're seeing the data in a different light, really, because the data has been there forever since we started to study what my old advisor used to call these studies down and then gradually back up, and it's, I don't know if you had this experience, I'd be curious, like, professionally, I've had my own experience sort of like moving away or, you know, having my own beliefs about this, but um, just this idea of like, it was talked about to some extent, like, like I said, the, mm-hmm. and that was in a bariatric surgery clinic, this idea of like these studies. I know you've had a lot of experience with surgery. So yeah. Any challenges or highlights that you care to share about just like professionally, like
1: re-identifying yourself with a very different uh, framework Yeah, it's been an interesting process. And I think that that's so spot on that, like the data has always been there, but for some reason we're kind of under the spell when, you know, we're not aware of health at every size or aware of alternatives. We're like under the spell of believing that, um, You know, it's like when everything, when you have a hammer, everything's a nail. You know, it's like you keep seeing everything through this certain lens. So I remember seeing, like, well, these are the challenges in weight loss. It's really about the maintenance and it's going to be, you know, this intervention or that intervention. And it's just about kind of finding the next, you know, the next best thing rather than taking a step back like I did when I had more knowledge about health at every size and was able to say, well, 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 this generally just doesn't seem to work. Maybe instead of like keeping trying, you know, Continuing to try slightly different approaches to the same thing. What if we just kind of threw threw out that paradigm or changed the paradigm and tried something that was really different? And you know, again, like there is research on health at every size, and it's so much more promising than the research on weight loss. Um, Yeah, and then in terms of like transitioning, it was an interesting process because I had been quite involved professionally. You know, like I said, in that world and. Um, attending conferences, speaking at conferences, you know, having my research published in, in that field. So it was a little bit of a, um, like you work, you know, you work for part of your career to build up, um, you know, to build up, I don't know, prestige, I don't know what you would call it, you know, build up experience, yeah. experience value, like in this certain area. And then you're saying like, well, okay, I guess I'm just giving that up now. Mm-hmm. But I stayed involved and like continued to go to some of those conferences for a while. And the last time I went, it felt really such a strong ethical disconnect of even paying the money to support the organization. Um, You know, I think it starts a lot for, and for a lot of us, as we're starting to explore like a weight, weight inclusive approach to health, there's this middle ground that we walk as we're trying to understand what we really believe. And I think over time, as things crystallize the weight normative approach or weight loss centered approach felt more and more, um, just wrong to me. Um, I, I didn't feel morally good about continuing involvement there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I was, um, reflecting as you were talking I got married and changed my name completely so I have all this research and under my uh, maiden name that's really like very weight focused and I mean it's just interesting I'm like I kind of am like this was a part of my experience and I'm not like ashamed of it although there is an element of like ooh, wish we wouldn't have said it like that or done that study but um, it's just kind of I guess I can sort of laugh about it now that I'm like that's like good and bad that it's sort of disconnected from um, from that name. And, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's, yeah, it's an interesting journey that I think most, uh, people, if they choose to be on are somewhere on the journey and I'm like, or I guess we're all still sort of on it, but I know that for me, at least in the past year, especially leaving healthcare and, uh, it's been really very positive. Um, but I've sort of was aware of health at every size many years ago and, Believed in it, but it's hard to operate in that framework in a in a healthcare environment and yeah. weight loss clinics. So anyway, as I'm sure you yeah, hmm
1: Yeah, it sure is, and I think that um, you know, it's also like the the shift doesn't happen overnight. Um, and you know, I'll say for me, there was a long t- many years where I kind of believed in health at every size, but like halfway, you know, it was kind of this, this, this walking both sides and um, coming to terms with what really resonated and felt right to me, you know, on many levels, personally, professionally, morally, ethically, like, um, and and I'm still on that journey in terms of learning and unwrapping all of the layers of health at every size and social justice and the intersections, um, you know, in so many different areas.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Before this interview, I sort of do, do my research and I read your book and I was looking just, I have the window open right here on my uh, screen of like a psychology today article you wrote about sugar addiction, I think many years ago, maybe 2012. And so even reading some of the language there, it's different than your book and um, which makes sense, right? It sort of reflects what we're talking about. Yes, completely. And
1: a little different. (laughs) No, it definitely isn't. I think that you probably could trace the evolution kind of even looking at my psychology today blog, which started, you know, over 10 years ago. And um it's been a long time goal for me, although I haven't had the time to do it to go back and revise some of that and take out some of the things that feel more problematic. Um, but you know, I think we've all because our culture teaches that weight normative approach, um, you know, I don't think there's like we're all we're all kind of swimming in that and on different parts of a journey or evolution, you know, to move away from that and move towards weight inclusivity. So, um, you know, I think it's just about being open and learning and we've all been there. And, you know, I, I think a, a lot of people carry a lot of like guilt or shame around having been more weight, weight loss focused in the past. Um, and, you know, again, I think that it's like, when we know better, we do better and, and try to repair when we can, but
0: Yeah, definitely. I know I was going to ask you later about like the social media aspect, but that's one thing that I think is problematic is that many people feel shame about whatever they're doing as a professional. And then it closes the door to these conversations versus opens. And uh, so I'm hoping that we can gradually change that. But um, I do want to talk about a little bit about your book and we'll talk about it and we'll link to it because it's great. um, And I was able to finish it, which I'm very proud of because I don't read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books. Um, but Same. yeah, so your book, um, The Diet Free Revolution. And then you also have an online program, has a very pretty high emphasis on regular mindfulness, not necessarily long amounts of mindfulness. You say we can start really small or just small amounts. Um, but I was curious how you decided to emphasize mindfulness as opposed to talking more about this intuitive eating and the principles, things like that. What, how did you make that decision with your kind of approaches?
1: So you know, mindfulness is um, you know the foundation of the work that I do, and I've been trained in mindful eating. The programs I developed are around mindful eating. I think there is a lot of overlap with mindful eating and intuitive eating. Um, I I've, I've never been formally trained in intuitive eating, so I just feel a little bit less um, like expertise in that area. Although I there's a you know I'm a huge fan of the book and the work. And again, I think there's a a tremendous amount of overlap and crossover, but for me, the mindfulness practice is really, um, such a huge part of things. And it, it it really bothers me when like a lot of these different programs say they do mindful eating and it's gotten so co-opted by diet culture. And I think like Weight Watchers says they do mindful eating now, Noom does mindful eating and I don't know what they're doing, but it's really hard to imagine that it's Really, truly mindful eating because mindful eating is inherently a weight-inclusive, non-restrictive um, kind of anti-diet approach. But um, the other thing that all these that a lot of programs leave out is the mindfulness practice. And mindfulness, I think, is so key in terms of shifting not only the way that we relate to food and our bodies, but the way that we relate to ourselves and kind of just the world around us in in general and I often tell my clients like, you know, you're hearing about mindfulness a lot being used in the treatment of everything from like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, um, productivity, parenting, you know, we're seeing it being used in all these different areas. And I think that that is because... um, it really is effective and it's not about it's the same mindfulness practices that are used in all of these different programs um and you see results in different you know changes in different areas of your life because it's not just about symptom alleviation it's about you know really kind of changing the way that you that you are your kind of state of being in the world
0: yeah yeah i think that makes a lot of sense there's so i mean we just have an immense amount of data on mindfulness in general and um yeah, whether it's applied to eating or more broadly, it's like skills that are very, very transferable. And um, so, yeah, just curious, kind of your your thoughts about that. But I I agree, and I think a lot of it is I also haven't been formally trained in intuitive eating. I found personally the book very helpful a number of years ago. But um, yeah, I I feel a little bit of like, ooh, that's not something that I've specifically gone through training in. And uh, mindfulness a little bit more so, although. I don't practice regularly, which you're not really supposed to like teach it too much. So maybe one day I will practice it more regularly and teach it. I do sometimes, but
1: um... yeah. And it's hard, It, it can be hard to develop a regular practice. That's one of the reasons that I really um, emphasize like, how can we fit it into your life where it's doable versus this idea of like the perfect practice, or I have to set aside 20 minutes and I have to go to a meditation center or sit in a specific pillow or whatever it is, you know, it really can just be like three minutes a day, five minutes a day. Um, it can be on the subway, in the bathroom, you know, in your, whatever work cubicle like it doesn't have to be perfect but you know i do think that mindfulness is often kind of the missing le- link we hear a lot in the kind of anti diet world about like you know just listen to your body and eat what you want but it's hard to you know, listen to your body when we can't hear what our body is telling us. And I really do think mindfulness is that skill, it builds up that observational part of our brains where we're able to say, okay, you know, I actually hear my tummy is telling me that I'm hungry, or I'm having a lot of self critical thoughts right now, or I'm having, you know, judgment about this food, it lets us kind of um, create some space in what but often can be a very reactive automatic process where we can say okay observe this is what's happening right now how do i want to move forward and then you know i emphasize also the piece of how do we want to move forward in a way that's compassionate towards myself mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah i love that and i think yeah the way you describe it in your book is i'm like okay that would be a lot more doable i took um mbsr uh, as a like a not as a training and they, you know, they really encourage like 30 to 60 minutes a day. And I still remember I was like commuting to my internship at rush and I would get up really early and I would fall asleep on my floor. Like I had this little strip of floor and I would lay on the floor. Cause I was like, I lay in my bed, I'm going to fall asleep. And I just fall asleep on my floor. So I could probably
1: give it another go this time around. <laughs> and yeah. Probably, you know, I, that's a mm-hmm. bit smaller about. <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, again, like I had the similar experience with, um, you know, trying to integrate mindfulness practice in the MBSR training. And like, yeah, I think it like goes up to like an hour a day of mindfulness. And I was like, I'm just not, that's not happening for me. Like, that's just not something I have the bandwidth for. And then of course, what ends up happening, you know, like human nature is that we get into this all or none and we say, well, I can't do the hour that they're recommending. So I'm just not going to do the mindfulness practice versus, you know, can we find time for three minutes?
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Most of us can find, yeah. Three minutes, one minute, just start somewhere. So, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And there is research to support kind of these mindful bursts, you know, that there's a benefit to these short, brief mindfulness practices. And, you know, I, I really love the believe that something's better than nothing. Um, I believe the research even shows like a ceiling effect at like 20 minutes. Um, you know, if you've practiced for 20 minutes versus an hour, it's a similar benefit.
0: Okay. Good to know. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, just so the listeners who don't know, we both said MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, an eight-week mindfulness program that is very well established in the medical field by Jon Kabat-Zinn. So um, one of the concerns that I've heard from some professionals about intuitive eating that, is that it hasn't been studied in enough, a wide enough variety of populations Less work um, has been done in individuals of higher weights, lower SES, more diverse samples, which is, unfortunately is true of many of our research studies. But yeah, I was
1: just curious your thoughts about this. So I, I'm not super familiar with all of the research on intuitive eating, so it's hard for me to speak to it, but I know that there, that there is a ton of research that's been done. Um, I know that on the Evelyn Triboli's uh, website, um, that she, she you know has kind of a compilation of all of the research which is really powerful I think she says like how many like there's been like 100 and however many studies that have been done in, yeah yeah so you know I don't want to at all give the idea that like intuitive eating is like not a well-researched methodology it certainly is um I can't but I, I can't speak to the specifics you know I think that overall yeah like who it's really important to look at who gets left out of research um, and whether we're talking about research on intuitive eating or eating disorders or anything really for that matter, you know, we do tend to see uh, primarily, you know, white middle and upper class populations, um, you know, in eating disorders, it tends to be primarily, you know, research around cisgender uh, again, most, most research around cisgender people um, Young, it tends to skew younger people, and it is important to look at like who gets left out of this, and um, what you know are the results generalizable to to all people? And I think that especially when we look at whether it's intuitive eating or mindful eating, one criticism that we often hear is that so much of it rests on having security around food. You know, I know like in my program um, I talk a lot with people in the book and in my online program and one-on-one, like we talk a lot about how to reassure yourself that like food is always available whenever you want it. And that's one thing that really helps get people out of this now or never mentality, the belief that like, you know, I have to eat this delicious cookie right now because I'm never going to be able to have this cookie again. I'm going to go back on my diet plan tomorrow. I'm going to have no cookies. So like, I'm going to have this one now because I've already broken my diet plan. Maybe I'll have two or three or whatever, you know, and it can lead to this disconnected eating. Um, so that's really important now we know that for financial reasons not everyone has food security and then how you know what do we do for people like for example we know that in people who are reliant on there's been studies looking at people who are reliant on um food banks and there's higher rates of uh binge eating disorder and different types of eating disorders and disordered eating in those populations it's not just about saying, well, make sure that you always have cookies in the house, right? Like that's just not realistic. So it's something that came up when I was writing the book and I was really trying to think about, you know, what can we, what, what if people can't afford to have, you know, food? And it's not only people who are relying on food banks, just there's a lot of us that, you know, can't have an abundance of all these foods that we want all the time. Like we're there's logistical constraints to that. And how does that impact the ability to practice mindful eating or non-restrictive eating? Um, What I kind of came to is like, I think we can take pieces of it and use mindfulness to observe how those things make us feel. It's like anything else, like we, we can take it, pick and choose, you know, things that are that we're able to integrate into our life. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's never going to look perfect under any circumstances. It's just about observing what comes up and working with it when, when it does arise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I think that, yeah, obviously with any research, it's there's flaws and there's, and there's things that are just hard to measure and they're hard to capture. And so there's so many components to this of like, if it's either not well-studied or like, let's say it's like studied in someone of like like in a larger body, and then there's not, they're not seeing as much benefit of intuitive eating. Let's just say, for example, that could be the case. There's so many reasons that could be right. And so it's always this sort of complicated thing. So yeah, I haven't delved into like in depth all of the research either. So I can't speak to that. But I was just kind of curious your thoughts. And it's just, yeah, I think, like you said, it's the whether mindful eating or intuitive eating, there's so many aspects of that, that like, definitely we know all all people could benefit from like not particularly like if food's not available not saying like I'm bad for then wanting food when it is available right it's these beliefs that we internalize I'm bad I'm out of control versus like no that makes sense that's actually a super
1: adaptive response to food then being available so yes um, exactly yeah. Yeah, awesome. exactly. I, I do. I, I'm pretty sure that there has been research on intuitive eating. I know there has been on mindful eating in people in larger bodies and higher weight individuals. So I I don't believe that's a population that's been left out of that research specifically. I would have to look at the intuitive eating. I know there's been studies on mindful eating in people in larger bodies. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of it's been done front, through this weight normative lens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which yeah. It's hard, hard to... Idea.
0: Right. It's hard to, there's a lot of pieces of parse apart. Yeah. I think, and again, it's also like how much research is enough to sort of like feel like it's well been well studied, but I'm, I'm sure it has been. And I'll have to, I'll have to look back. That was from that questions more from, um, other people that I've heard. So I could also go back to, to looking at it specifically myself. Um, and also, you've done a good amount of work, like you had mentioned, and I've kind of in my research about you the, the bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery area. I'm curious. This is a, uh, also an area that I have a lot of experience in myself, um, you know, up to very recently, and and still have experience certainly working with people um, who would fall into this category. But I'm curious what your thoughts are, sort of on how like this all fits into the anti diet work
1: that you you do yeah, the health in every size field. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really interesting. And I was just um, having a conversation with a colleague, Um, there's a local bariatric surgery program that's been trying to integrate intuitive eating into their program and um, how could kind of like, on one hand, how great that is that people are starting to get that message and on another hand, how confusing it is For people who are having surgery to lose weight, but then also be getting the message like, but don't focus on your weight. That's not important, but we're going to weigh you every week. And, you know, it's very, I think it's very confusing. I mean, I've moved, I still work a lot with people who have had bariatric surgery and people who are preparing for bariatric surgery, but I have moved away from working as closely, like, for example, with the surgery programs. And um, I don't do the, I used to do a lot of the, like, the Um, psychological evaluations for people getting ready to do surgery. I don't do those anymore because I I felt like there was a disconnect in terms of um, my belief system and kind of um, that type of work. But at the end of the day, you know, I do think that people have um, autonomy to do what they want with their body and to make choices that they want. I'm not like vehemently against bariatric surgery, because I feel that, especially as someone with thin privilege, um, you know, I don't know what it's like to walk in the world as a person in a larger body. And, um, you know, I think it's a deeply personal choice that people make. I think it's often from a place of, uh, you know, really feeling that there's no other options out there. one thing that I do really wish was that people were better informed about the outcomes after surgery. One of the things that I was seeing a lot when I was doing these uh, preoperative evaluations and meeting with people as they were just embarking on that process of surgery was just the vast misinformation out there, you know, minimization, huge minimization of the risks. I think that was happening through the surgery centers. Um, They really, you know, their job is to want to kind of get as many people as possible to do surgery. That's their surgeons. That's how they make their money. That's what they do all day. So there was really a sense of, I think selling people on this picture of, you know, you're gonna be healthy, you're gonna have all these issues resolved. Um, And, you know, it's very low risk of anything, you know, negative happening. And I think that's just not the reality. Um, You know, maybe the risk of like, dying on the operating table is, you know, relatively low, but I am working with people who have long-term complications that have dramatically impacted their quality of life. Uh, Not to mention that there's kind of this promise that people are going to lose weight and keep it off long-term. Whereas a lot of people regain weight, we're seeing a Uh, recurrent, you know, that same V curve, like we're seeing a similar recurrence with uh, things like diabetes, where it's going into remission, you know, immediately after surgery, and people are feeling really hopeful. And then it comes back and people are just, you know, devastated long term to find themselves, you know, back with a lot of these same issues that they thought were going to be resolved with the surgery. And um, I wrote a paper a few years ago, looking at kind of like, what are the real um, risks and outcomes of surgery one we were looking at it through the lens of a finding that we've seen over and over again in a lot of the research, which is that people um, who have had bariatric surgery are at increased risk of um, ha- of suicide long-term after the surgery. And I really think a lot of that we're seeing is from this like deep depression and, you know, psychological turmoil that comes from doing this thing that you think is kind of the last resort measure and going to, save you in some ways or be the answer and then feeling that you have, you know, failed at that. Now, of course, I don't think that anyone has failed at the surgery, but that's how it gets conceptualized and it can be just completely devastating. Um, you know, there's a, a number of different theories of why they increase suicide, but I think that the unrealistic expectations starting out as part of it. So that's my hope is that, you know, for people who are considering bariatric surgery, um, you know, inform yourself beyond just what you're hearing at the surgery office, but you know, look at the research, um, you know, what the research shows, look at people who have had the surgery, who have not had the good results. These are not the people that the surgery offices are bringing in to talk to people at that first meeting. I mean, I remember like when I was working at the surgery center, it'd be someone, you know, coming in with like, giant pair of pants and they've now lost all this weight and they put themselves in one you know one leg of the pants and it's really this attitude of like you know i did this you can too like but for every person like that there's a whole bunch of people who have had really you know who are not happy having had it and you know we're not hearing those voices
0: yeah yeah that that makes sense i have um i've asked this question to a a couple of different people and um, i think a lot of people are like not sure within like a health at every size framework, how we make sense of this. And this is something that I've talked a little bit about on the podcast and I've had kind of similar thoughts to like, I'm obsessed with talking about autonomy because I think it's like the key to everything. It's like, which is freedom of choice without excessive pressure, right? Autonomous choice for any healthcare decision. It's like you said, it's, um, who is anyone outside of someone's body to say what's right for that person's body. And, and yet it's a complicated conversation too there's a lot to and obviously medicine actually we're going to talk a little bit about like medicine in a moment here but um they don't have a lot of time but um but these
1: are essential conversations so yeah I think people have to be there yeah and I think it's really interesting to look at it through the lens of autonomy and you know choice without pressure Um, I like that definition I don't know if I've heard that before but um The, you know, because I I think that so many people who are making the choice to have bariatric surgery are doing it under duress in some way, you know, oftentimes it's like their doctor says, well, you're going to die if you don't have the surgery or, you know, you're going to have, you know, diabetes and you're going to have all of these health problems. And don't you want to be there for your kids? And don't you want to see your grandkids? you know? And, you know, people, it, it, it's uh, people feel panicked. And as a medical doctor, there's a place of authority that people have. They say, if this, if my doctor says I'm like on death's doorstep, if I don't have the surgery, like, you know, my, my Lord, I, I have to go do this. I have to have the surgery. I want to live. And that's not always the fact. So I think that, like, oftentimes people are making choices and decisions um, about something that has profound lifelong impacts, you know, on quality of life, on health without the information. And that's why I think it's really about empowering people to understand, like, what are the long-term consequences health-wise too, you know, because we are seeing long-term nutritional deficits, um, increased risk of different kinds of ailments after surgery. And, you know, again, I think people are making that decision without, um, they're making that choice. I don't know how autonomous it always is.
0: No, I think there's so many factors that keep it from being fully autonomous, even just like diet culture messages that have been internalized that people aren't even really aware. um, Because so many people are unaware of like, the, the limits to research with weight, weight related research is like, we can't randomly assign one person to be at this weight and one person to be at this weight. So we can never determine cause really. And so it's like this, It's like, it's just a very challenging thing with all these variables we can't account for. And then, yeah, yes, the medical field certainly implies weight is the cause of most ailments and and weight is then therefore the solution. And it's uh, very much impairs fully autonomous choices. Um, And not to mention surgery is not reversible. So you with, you know, you can't do a wait and see approach for how your body will respond. So we can just yeah. kind of share what we know and what we think we know from research. But yeah, it's it's a conversation that's usually missing some pieces. Well, definitely is right now.
1: It, it really is. And I, I wonder, you know, if, if people, if that phobia wasn't so prevalent in our culture and people weren't living in these marginalized states due to the size of their body and being subjected to weight-based discrimination and you know fat phobia at their doctor's office, like would anybody be choosing, you know, bariatric surgery? I, I don't know. I think that like you can't separate it. And a lot of people are making those, you know, decisions under the pressure of feeling desperate for relief from the discrimination and marginalization and you know, fearful from the messages they're getting from their doctor.
0: Yeah. It's hard to parse it apart. Yeah. The biggest piece that I've heard from people is like the mobility piece. And again, I usually try to help people parse apart, like what is true mobility limitations and what is like perceived since there's so much like perceived feeling of like, I can't do this because of my body size. And that's not always the case. Right. But, but also then telling them or or, like having the conversation, like I'm not in your body. So, but at least with what we do in, in therapy, we have a bit more time to like, have these conversations, which is nice, and and trying to at least try to make the distinction, which is hard to do, but a little bit easier than a you know
1: 15-minute consult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that like also in therapy, I do a lot of work of helping people separate out those health goals from weight. You know, like for example, if people you know are being motivated by by mobility issues, are there ways to improve mobility independent of focusing on weight loss? And you know, off you know, I think it was always there are or there's, you know, this is just a chronic condition that people are going to be living with regardless of their weight. And how do you, you know, build resiliency and coping mechanisms around that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All, all good points for sure. Um, And transitioning a little bit, but along a similar line, you know, what are your thoughts about the really generally not more widely accepted notion of these health at every size and intuitive eating in I'm asking too many questions at once. <laughs> like psychology, it's not really something like you and I didn't get it in our training. Right. We, we sought it out outside. Um, but, but also medicine in general, I'm curious, like what your thoughts are. Do you think it's, you know, do you think you're seeing some improvements or do you think uh, that it's still just, it's clearly not well known in these fields. I, I know that for a fact, but do you think it's getting better? <laughs>
1: Um, Yes and no. I think that, you know, health at every size, intuitive eating, um, even under, you know, terms like body positivity have definitely been much more in the mainstream conversation. Like, when I first started uh, learning about this, and even when I first started, like working on the book proposal, which was, you know, I think like eight or nine years ago, um, I was told over and over again, like, you can't tell people it's okay to be fat, like, that's dangerous. That's, you know, that, that's unethical. You, you can't do that. And I think that attitude has shifted in, in terms of more of a widespread recognition of like the beauty, you know, the oppressive beauty ideals, um, especially for, for women, versus for women, and um, the that the fact that diets don't work and kind of like diet culture, that phrase, I think, you know, again, like I, when I would talk to clients about diet culture, you know, even five years ago, it was totally new. And now I would say, you know, more and more people, most people probably come in being somewhat familiar with that phrase. So I think that it's more in the mainstream dialogue. I think that filters down in some ways to psychology and to medicine, but you know, the weight normative approach is definitely still dominant. And I think that what we're seeing in medicine, which I think is very problematic is this, again, the straddling of people, um, kind of recognizing the harms of weight stigma, but then still approaching it from this weight normative lens. So there's really like, and it can be confusing because there's a lot of these seem groups that seem like they're advocacy groups that are really, um, really kind of run by the bariatric surgery industry, the pharmaceutical industry, weight loss companies, diet companies kind of back these advocacy groups that are about like, how can we help, you know, educate physicians and people about the harms of weight stigma so that they feel more comfortable going into a doctor's office. Cause we know that if patients feel shamed, they don't want to go to the doctor's offices. So how can we get them to come into the doctor's offices so that we can prescribe weight loss medications or recommend surgery? So it's like, so gaslighty and confusing, and, you know, um, So that's one thing that I think we're seeing in medicine. That's like a lot of people are like, Oh, look at these strides that we're making. Like there's so much education around weight stigma, but like, no, that's not really coming to the idea of health at every size or the idea that like, we should just leave people alone about their body size and work on health promoting behaviors instead of focusing so much on weight. So I think we have a long, long ways to go. The conversation is getting out there a little bit. I would love to see it a lot more. I would love to see health at every size being taught in medical schools routinely so that physicians are coming out with an awareness of not only the harms of weight stigma, but um, that they are empowered with a different approach to work with their patients where people want to come back and see you, you know, if you're not, um, if, if people feel good when they're in your office as a physician and don't leave, you know, in tears, like that's a good thing.
0: Yeah. Then yeah more likely to come back, but also yes. like less likely to sue and like more likely to also get healthier. Of course, that's very important as well. Yeah. I'm wondering, yeah. How far off do you think we are from, I mean, I, I'm sure there's some training, but like, yeah, in terms of mainstream training, that's, I would guess that's farther off, but
1: do you see like, I think there's none. Training?
0: Yeah. Do you see, I, I'm, I just signed up to do a medical training, so I'm, I will be talking about it. In a few months,
1: That's great.
0: An hour, and, but, uh, we'll take it. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious if you've seen like some receptivity to like those types of trainings currently in the medical
1: settings. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I think that, you know, receptivity, I think that, especially for people like the students, I think are receptive. I think that a lot of, especially people kind of like coming out of medical school or grad school now are very receptive to these ideas. I think that they're, you know, again, in some sense that like, you know, this, this weight normative approach doesn't work, but um, they you know, are just not educated about it. So, you know, I would say the average doctor like entering, you know, throughout like medical school and residency and fellowship even like is really not getting any training in health at every size at all. They get very little training in terms of anything having to do with eating behaviors or weight, uh, talking to people about weight at all. Although they do get this message that you know, obesity is bad and that we have to tell people to lose weight and counsel them on losing weight, but they have no idea how to do it. So I think that, you know, actually when, when students are exposed to the idea of this is what the data says, you know, this is what's effective. This is what's not, this is how the weight normative approach can be harmful in terms of perpetuating weight stigma. Here's the negative health outcomes that can come from that. And here's tools that you can use with your patients that are going to enhance the patient doctor experience. Experience, you know, help you have a better relationship with your patients. They're going to feel better when they're leaving. And this is something that, you know, you'll leave them empowered with things that they can actually do and feel good about when they're leaving. Like they're very receptive to that. But I think the challenge is really like getting into the medical schools, getting into the curriculum, getting those trainings in there. Um, I was very happy. I went back to my grad school, to my doctoral program to give a talk recently. And I asked how many people had heard of health at every size. And it was like about half the class. So like that was hopeful. Cause I got nothing when I was well, in the like maybe they Google you. No, I'm just kidding, but no, hopefully <laughs> there is
0: improvement.
1: Cause I've asked that in recent talks too. And, uh,
0: it, and just last week, uh, none, and it was a small, yeah. small group, but still, um, and that wasn't medicine, but, but still, it's pretty, um, I, I am often surprised. I think when you're immersed in this work, but yeah, you're like, well, yeah, that's they're not getting immersed in this work, so it's a different, um, just like so many things in our world today, we're we're not all being seen seeing the same information when we're online and things like that, which is increasing polarization. And I guess that's a good transition to um, this idea of like using social media to. Certainly, you are on social media and have a whole lot of followers. My my social media presence is lackluster cluster at best. I also really struggle with not enjoying it. But um but yeah using it as like to help individuals be aware of this is, you know, I would say arguably a very positive thing. I, I'm curious though, I one of my goals is sort of to have more productive conversations between profession different professional fields, kind of going along with what we were just saying. And, and I'm curious if that if you've seen that occur in social media, um, and I don't know that that's like a specific goal of yours, per se, but I'm sure you've interacted with many different professionals. And it, it seems challenging to
1: have those conversations on social media. That's, I guess, my thoughts and then
0: I'm curious your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say social media is not the land of nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's. <laughs> like you said, like, and, and as we're hearing more, you know, with like the Facebook stuff that's coming out, you know, the goal of a lot of these platforms is polarization and to increase anger and kind of these, um, those kinds of feelings towards each other. So, um, you know, I, I, I use social media a lot as like an educational tool. I felt You know, when I started getting involved in this work, I I was doing mostly, you know, just working with people one on one in my practice and, you know, I felt that's important, but also we need a cultural shift and that happens individually and I really do believe that each person we impact, each person who kind of wakes up from diet culture and embraces a health at every size approach and starts to examine these things in their life, has an impact on everyone around them. And those people, you know, it's a snowball effect. So I do think that change happens that way, but I also wanted an avenue to kind of speak to to people who aren't finding their way into my therapy, you know, room, whether it's for, you know, accessibility or geography or whatever, you know, not everyone can access therapy, unfortunately. So while in no way is, you know, Instagram a replacement for therapy, um, it's a way to, you know, help um, put out psychoeducation and close the gap in what I was seeing again, like when I first started doing this work, more even more significantly but still now close this gap between like the data uh what we see as researchers and the messages that are getting out there to the mainstream public yeah yeah
0: absolutely yeah so so yeah great for and I certainly have a lot of clients who find it really helpful whether it's Instagram or TikTok which is something I know nothing about (laughs) but um like find it very validating very very positive on the individual level and yeah, sounds like we're on the same page with like probably not a super productive way to like engage across some discrepancies in opinion, but like really helpful for people that are just like, I want to learn more about this and I want to understand. So, yeah. I,
1: would. I, I, I think that some of that gap could be bridged more in professional settings where there's, you know, like um, especially, you know, again, like training settings, medical schools, doctoral programs, like and it's, there's, there's some people that are never going to change their opinion. You know, people who have built a career around weight loss or diet, you know, who, people who work, you know, work for or, or own, you know, their careers around dieting um, or a diet company. Like I'm not expecting like the, you know, president of Noom to come and embrace health at every size. Like that's not as hard and that's fine. You know, they do what they're, what they do. Um, I do think that there's a lot of people who are like just have not, n- not familiar with a weight inclusive paradigm. They don't know that there's anything else out there. Um, and like myself, you know, I think back to myself 10 years ago. And I, again, I was working at an obesity research center. I was working in a bariatric surgery program, but I just didn't know about a weight inclusive approach. And all it took was someone, you know, saying like stating the very obvious fact that this doesn't work and everything shifted. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who are very open and receptive to these ideas, maybe understand that the weight normative approach isn't working, but aren't sure what else to do. And I think those are people that are really valuable to be providing education and having these conversations with. I think it it can be hard. We can get stuck into dialogue. Often the people who engage on social media are people who are at extremes of either end of the belief spectrum. And it's like, we're trying to bridge the gap of, you know, someone who believes that like someone who's, you know, at a higher weight is at death's doorstep and needs to do everything they can to lose weight. And someone who believes that that person is, you know, oppressing them and, you know, trying to kill them basically, you know, it's like how, you know, where's the bridge there? Um, Yeah. 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 But yes,
0: like, yeah, nuance. Well, first of all, like just a conversation, like even if it's over video or like anything with more nuance than typing would be a great first start. But then yes, it is very, a very challenging starting point. So yeah, I, I'm also hopeful that like, it's, we have data, we have efficacy and um, yeah, that's why I'm, you know, this podcast is all about really, we, we talk about like motivation, but all from the standpoint of like self-determination theory and promoting autonomous motivation. And like for any behavior, we have really good data that that's like really helpful for long-term change, whatever behavior we're talking about. And it's like, there's immense data about that. So we have that in our, on our side. It's, I think I've seen that, that research being being applied to like the eating space somewhat, but not a ton yet. Mm-hmm. So, and they've just, they looked at it in a bunch of other areas, but, um, and that's a good transition to our motivation questions that we do ask everyone. Um, so first looking at like something that you have truly intrinsic more motivation for. Um, so you do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior, either because you enjoy it or even just you find it like challenging or something about the
1: behavior is satisfying in its own right. Hmm. Um, you know, I think that, you know, um, like learning about certain things is something that has a lot of intrinsic motivation for me. It's it's why I went into psychology. In addition to trying to figure out like the food stuff, I mean, really, like I just was so fascinated by what makes people tick, like why people do the things that they do, and what's going on with other people. As you know, I'm myself an introvert and like very um, oftentimes just like. <laughs> befuddled with other people. And, um, you know, it's just as fascinating to me getting to learn more about kind of the inner workings of the mind and like our motivations and um, what, you know, what's behind someone doing, you know, what they do. So I don't wanna, you know, therapy obviously is like complicated because I get, you know, extrinsic, uh, motive you know, reinforcement or whatever from that as well. But I really do love what I do. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. And just that, yeah, the, the learning piece is the intrinsic piece, but obviously, yeah, it applies to, yeah, therapy is a great, uh, like our job is to be curious, right. And, and try to understand people's perspectives. So yeah, I love that. And, and that's what, um yeah, I mean, even self-determination theory has looked at like motivation and educational school settings. And like, we actually all have this like intrinsic drive of learning, but it can get taken away early um, for, because of, structures that are too extrinsic and, and too external. So I think as having kids that are about to start school, it's like, oh, I think I'm gonna start to notice how this applies in a lot of settings. But I'm glad that you've been able to maintain that intrinsic love, particularly in what you do. And I can definitely relate to to all of that. That's yeah, not just therapy, but that's why I do this podcast is it's really fun. Um yeah. always getting to learn from really cool people like yourself and, and kind of just ask them about their experience. So, um, and then the next question we always ask people is really this idea of internalization, something from a behavior that used to be more of a should to something that becomes more internal, more choice-based. Um, the technical term is in- integrated motivation, but what's an example of a behavior that used to be always a should for you, maybe struggle to do it consistently, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently, either because you value it or kind of as part of your identity, even if maybe you don't always love it, like that intrinsic
1: piece. Um, yeah, I would say uh, movement, like physical activity for me, is that just jumps out as such a strong example of that because for so long, um, you know, exercise was linked with weight loss for me. And it was the sense of like, I have to go to the gym. And I hated, and I was never, like, an active kid. I was very sedentary. I would have rather stayed home and watched television, you know, above doing any kind of sports or everything, anything like that. So, like, I didn't even have a baseline for, like, movement ever being fun and enjoyable. Um, and it really was a sense of, like, my, like, like, I've done something bad, I'm bad in some way, and then I have to go to the gym and exercise to, like, repent for that. And that was the... Um, Mindset around exercise that I had for many, many years. And I would go through these periods of like, going to the gym when I was like trying to be quote unquote good and like dieting. And then as soon as, you know, I was off the diet, it was like, well, why bother going to the gym anyway, because I'm not going to accomplish my goals or whatever. Um, and it was, I, I wasn't active. I went through a period when I was in graduate school, cause I just didn't have the time to go to the gym. The amount of times that I had been told I needed to, to see results, um, in terms of like losing weight, uh, Mm. because that's why I was doing it. So I said, well, if I can't go, you know, however many times a week, this trainer once told me I had to go, like, why bother at all? So I went through a number of years where I really wasn't active at all. And I started to have a lot of aches and pains. I mean, I was in my 20s um, and I was like developing sciatica and a lot of different kinds of um, body pains. And I started to become active again in a way that felt very gentle and, um, also like attuned to my body really kind of like just starting even with like some stretching and some um, very like slow movement. And then I found this like um, class that I really enjoyed doing that was like this very gentle, slow dance class. And then I got into you doing it. that.
0: That sounded really yeah.
1: cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was the first time that I was exercising, you know, exercising or being active for the sake of, you know, for the sake of doing the activity itself. And that has felt, that felt really different. And, um, you know, now if I'm going to be active, it's not from the sense that I have to, but it's the sense of like, this is something that I enjoy. And like you said, I may not always enjoy it in the moment, but I know that I feel better. It helps with my mental health. um, I enjoy the benefits from it. And it, it really feels like something I want to do versus something I have to do.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, just often this as like, I'm sure you have a lot of clients as well, who I, I don't know if I have a very not, uh like statistically, I'm making up the statistic, but it feels like diet culture almost always zaps some joy out of exercise. But like you said, if someone has more of a history where there's some positivity there, it can be easier. But you know, I'd say about half ish of, again, the people that I work with just like, really, it's like completely zapped that ability to believe that you might like it. And it can take a lot of unpacking and unlearning to Mm say, and then kind of gradually moving towards, okay, this is something that might feel good. Try it. And it can be quite the process, but yeah, I'm glad you've been able to kind of reclaim activity for yourself or movement in that way, because, um, yeah, obviously mobility, there's so many positive reasons, but it just gets completely clouded by the weight focus. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, anything else you want to add is kind of a main takeaway. And then we also want to make sure I already have some resources up in terms of where people can know more about what you're doing. Um, before I ask for that final main takeaway, I'll say that the, I did read the whole book. It's really great. It's The Diet Free Revolution. We'll have a link to it in the show notes, but really 10 steps to free yourself from diet the diet cycle with mindful eating and radical self-acceptance. There's a lot of cool stories infused throughout about people's journeys, a lot of practical strategies, a lot of really great take-homes. So I highly recommend everyone check that out. Um, but yeah, back to my question, any kind of main takeaways you want people to leave this conversation with?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we covered a lot. I mean, some of the things that I was just, you know, kind of come back to again and again is, the power of self-compassion and trying to shift away from this idea that like we're doing something wrong or that our body is broken or that we're not good enough um, and starting to recognize that there's a lot invested in having us believe those things and um, yeah, challenging those thoughts and finding ways to really care for yourself um, with compassion and with mindfulness and trying to, you know, come back to, come back home to our bodies and, you know, reclaim the space and the pleasure and the enjoyment in life that that we all deserve. Yeah, yeah,
0: I love that. And then besides your website and your book, which will link to um, any other places, I guess, Instagram is probably a good place to connect with you is it the anti diet plan.
1: Yeah. I'm most active on Instagram at the anti-diet plan. You can also find uh, my website, Um, You can um, find information about my six-week mindful eating program. It's the anti And I have a free five-day mindful eating starter course that people can do. You can sign up from that on my website or the anti slash free.
0: Wonderful. Well, we will link to all of that. Thank you so much, Dr. Conison, for your time and expertise today. appreciate it so much. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And I really hope that, you know, I'm not going to belabor all the different points that we talked about because we covered a lot, but I hope that um, you can come away with this with one main takeaway, which is, you know, to the idea of practicing mindfulness Can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like, what is it? What is it not? I mean, how does it actually work? Mindfulness is definitely not something you do to relax. It's something you do to be present and aware with what is here now. And it's an immensely helpful change tool. It's been shown over and over in research how helpful this is. But as we talk about here, it does not need to be all or nothing. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It can be for one minute to start. Just pausing and slowing down and, you know, a great place to start might be doing Dr. Connison's free five day mindful eating course um, to get some exposure to what mindfulness is and what it isn't. But this conversation definitely re-inspired me to come back to this tool because let's be honest, um, at least at the time of this recording in early December of 2021, there continues to be an immense amount of pain in the world, a lot of people struggling, and it's... um, You know, this is not just specific to eating, but being more mindfully aware and being able to hold space internally for our uncomfortable feelings is so, so powerful. And to not judge ourselves and and to learn and practice that skill, mindfulness is a great way to do that. And again, it doesn't have to just be formal sitting mindfulness. You bring mindfulness into your life. So that's the goal, but it can be very helpful to practice it with sitting mindfulness meditation, but it's not necessarily doing it to feel relaxed so if you do it for a minute or three minutes or five minutes and you're like Sean I don't feel better I don't feel relaxed the goal is just practicing being aware and relating to your internal stuff your thoughts your emotions in a different way so it's there's an immense value that builds up over time and um, I highly recommend that you at least try it and again as someone who's had some fits and starts, I'm going to be committing to doing this more as well, and so I hope you will join me in that challenge for this year, because often we think about, okay, don't diet, don't use these ineffective diet strategies, and certainly we talk about other health-promoting behaviors on this podcast as well that you can focus on, but mindfulness is definitely one that I would want you to to consider as you think about what should I be doing or what is helpful, so I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, and I will talk to you soon. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books. And I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U S and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes make sure you check it out you can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness but also about topics like courage vulnerability and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun downtime or some meaningful stories my recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's drshawnhondor com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.